Well, let me take this opportunity to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome, members, guests. Uh, it's good to be back home. Uh, some of you may have noticed that my family and I were, were gone for a few weeks. We enjoyed a time of vacation together. It was wonderful. Um, we're grateful to God, the church, the church's leadership, the fine men who uh, preached over the course of the last several weeks in my absence. Uh, but it, it's certainly good to be home among God's people and certainly in a, among our family. Uh, it's good to see all, our, all these familiar faces. I invite you to turn in God's word to 1 Kings uh, chapter 12. 1 Kings 12, a sad but instructive chapter of Israel's history. 1 Kings 12, verses 1 through 24. <clears throat> Let's hear God's word together. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy on us. Uh, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again. So the people went away. <clears throat> then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant this, to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke your father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam. The third day, as the king said, uh, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke to Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. <clears throat> and when Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. 
There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the houses of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, our Father in heaven, we praise you as Lord over all things. Uh, we rejoice in the fact, Lord, that no human scheme or plan can thwart your plan or purpose. You will accomplish all that you have set out to accomplish. You will redeem a people for your glory. You will make all things new. And nothing, no human sin or folly can get in your way. We rejoice, Lord, that our destinies are firmly in your hands. Heavenly Father, as we read about the disunity among God's people, the northern and southern kingdoms, we are reminded of the importance of unity among us, the call to unity, the unity that your spirit produces. Uh, We pray, Lord, for our church, Christ Bible Church, that uh, it would be marked by a gospel unity, a unity grounded not in a shared background or economic status or culture, but in the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would, as a community, uh, exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit, live in harmony and peace with one another, exhibiting joy, uh, love uh, for one another, being ready to forgive offenses. Father, if there are frictions among us this morning, if there is resentment or a lack of forgiveness in our midst, we pray that your spirit would convict uh, those who are not pardoning their brother or sister, and we pray that you would Uh, Grant them to repent of their lack of forgiveness and forgive, and uh, we pray that we would live at peace with one another. Work in our midst, we ask. Glorify your name, we pray, through the proclamation of your word. Amen. Um, Some time ago, I I dipped into a book uh, which was essentially a history of history. Uh, It looked at how the idea of history had developed, and one of the interesting observations made in this book was that the Western conception of history as something linear and purposeful, but it's moving somewhere, is by no means a universal idea. If you look at the Assyrians, this book noted, uh, you have chronicles, this king did this and then this and then this happened and this happened, but there's no sense of motion, there's no sense of pattern and progress. Uh, The idea that it's all just sort of governed by whimsical gods, it's fundamentally chaos, not pattern. Uh, You see other cultures that have a, a, a cyclical view of history, Uh, human experience keeps repeating itself over and over again and then uh, the world is destroyed and then it happens all over again. There's no sense of direction or motion or purpose. And that raises the question. And it's not an unimportant question. Uh, How do you view the big picture? How do you view history? One generation comes, another goes. Is it going somewhere? Is history moving towards some sort of goal a culminating point? Is there a plan that gives meaning to all of this, that gives meaning to our individual lives? 
Or is it just one thing after another, one generation comes and goes, another comes and goes, and it means nothing? Is it, as one of Shakespeare's characters said very famously, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It's a pretty bleak view of history and human life. We come and go, and it adds up to precisely zero. Now, when you look at the world from an unbiblical perspective, and you see the silliness, the foolishness, and the wickedness all around us, you might be tempted to agree with that perspective. It's chaos that surrounds us. There is no larger purpose. Uh, Lewis, in his book, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Paralandra, suggests that one reason we might be tempted to feel that way is that there is actually more design and plan than we even might look for. He says, in the plan of the great dance, plans without number interlock, and each movement becomes in its season the breaking into flower of the whole design to which all else had been directed. All that is made seems planless to the darkened mind because there are more plans than it looked for. In other words, one reason people don't see more of a design is they don't look for enough of a design. There's design, pattern, orchestration everywhere. And indeed, that's the biblical perspective. Uh, One of the things that we see in this dark and sad chapter of Israel's history is that behind human silliness, folly, and wickedness, there is indeed a divine plan for history. God is working behind the scenes to accomplish a great and glorious purpose. As we'll see, believing that makes all the difference. Uh, The context for this chapter is Solomon's folly. Despite being uh, incredibly wise, he was capable of incredible folly. It's a paradox of human existence, right? One moment uh, you can be brilliant and insightful, and in another moment you can, as was the case for Solomon, wander from God. Uh, Solomon began well. But foreign women turned his heart from an undivided devotion to Yahweh, to the Lord, and he began to worship idols, foreign gods. He persisted in this. It's shocking that, as far as I can tell, there's no indication of repentance, at least not in this particular book. And God's judgment on Solomon is that the northern uh, kingdoms, the the northern tribes, I should say, will be wrested from him and from his son Rehoboam, and given to Jeroboam. But by grace, and because of his promise to David, God would leave Judah and Benjamin to his son Rehoboam. That's the word that God pronounces through through a prophet to Solomon. And in this chapter, we see God fulfilling that word of judgment. Uh, We're going to look at two things in response to the question, why was the kingdom divided? How did it come to be divided? Uh, We're going to answer that question at two levels. At one level, it's human folly and obtuseness that results in the kingdom being divided. Rehoboam's harsh rule is the immediate and human cause of the fragmentation of the kingdom. But there's more going on. We'll see that this fragmentation of the kingdom is also God's good plan. It happens because the Lord decreed that it should happen. He brought it to pass. So let's look at, in the first instance, Rehoboam's harsh reign. 
Uh, Rehoboam has already been confirmed as king in the southern part of the kingdom in Judah. And now he comes to the the city of Shechem to be confirmed as king um, among the northern tribes. And Jeroboam, who has been forced to flee, if you remember, there's a prophet who told Jeroboam uh, that, he, that God would take 10 of the tribes and give them to him. And word got out, so he had to flee from Solomon. But now that Solomon is dead, Jeroboam comes back from Egypt, and he comes to this assembly, apparently as a kind of uh, representative of the northern tribes. And this is their complaint. Verse 4, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. It's kind of a surprising thing, isn't it? For them to say that. Because at least initially in Solomon's reign, uh, it's wonderful. Life is good. Everyone's under their fig tree. People ate and drank and were happy. That's a description of his rule. Here they're complaining that it, it was oppressive. Uh, one way to understand that is that they're overstating their case. Maybe looking for a way out from under Rehoboam's reign. It's also possible, perhaps even likely, that as Solomon's reign became idolatrous, it also became oppressive. That as he worshipped false gods, he ground the people of God down. He demanded more and more in terms of forced labor and taxation. And so they request that the load be lightened. I would say, judging from the counsel that the elders give to Rehoboam, it's likely that there was some legitimacy to this request. Uh, things, his rule has been oppressive. He's demanded a lot of us, a lot of forced labor. Please lighten the load, and we are, we're going to submit to you as king. That's what they say. Now, uh, Rehoboam needs some time to think about this. He says, on the third day, come back, and I'll give you my answer. And so he brings together two sets of counselors. He brings together the old men who stood before his father Solomon and uh, were able to see the wisdom of Solomon in action and undoubtedly benefit from it. And the old men counsel moderation and gentleness. Uh, and on the other hand, there are the young men who counsel double down, don't look weak, right? Be strong. And we see this contrast between the old and the young several times in this passage. Even when the decision is announced to the people, we are told the king answered the people harshly, for, for, for forsaking the counsel of the old men. And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men. And that contrast between old and young and old and young is clear and repeated in this passage. Uh, One of the things it shows us is that we should give weight to the aged. We should give weight to the counsel, to the judgment, to the perspective of the uh, aged. I mean, there's no, you know, it's possible to grow old before you grow wise. That happens regrettably. You can become old before you become wise. Uh, So the counsel of the aged is not infallible, but still, life experience, especially when you've walked with the Lord many years, your judgment ripens, your perspective deepens. And one encouragement to us is to listen to our brothers and sisters who are further along than we are, who have walked with the Lord many years, who who have aged, but aged in fellowship with Christ. And one way to honor them is to seek their advice. How should I parent? How should I think about these challenges that I'm facing? Some of the best advice that I've gotten, this may be true for you, were from people who were significantly farther along uh, than I was. It's interesting that in Titus 2, Paul says to younger women, if you want to learn how to love your husbands and uh, take care of your kids and run, run the home, what should you do? You should hang out with older women. 
and learn from them. So God's people will always have a healthy respect for the wisdom of the aged. Look to them for counsel. And I think this passage is instructive, um, <clears throat> excuse me, for those who are a little younger among us, those of you who might be in junior high or high school, that, that age range. Uh, are any of you there? My, who am I talking to here? Junior high, high school. I know you're there, so listen up. Um, one, one of the unique temptations that you face in this uh, period of your life is to give more weight to the perspective, to the advice of your friends and your peers than to that of your parents, pastors, and teachers. Uh, parents sometimes seem out of step with the way the world is. Uh, your peers seem to get it. And so you are tempted to give more weight to what you see in your friends, your peers, than in what you see in your elders, your mother, father, pastor, teacher, and so on. Uh, but remember, uh, by listening to his buddies, Rehoboam lost his kingdom. Uh, it's folly to give more weight to those who are your peers. Listen to those who are further along. Listen to your mom and dad. Give more weight to the counsel, to the advice that they give you. So there's a contrast then between the advice of the old and the advice of the young. And there's also a contrast uh, in terms of what is said. Now, both the old and the young are aiming at the same thing, compliance, submission. The advice given by the older counselors and the younger counselors seek uh, to, to get the northern tribes to submit to Rehoboam's reign, but they seek to obtain that kind of compliance in two different ways. The counsel of the young men is uh, pursue compliance, pursue their submission through force, threats, and fear. Rule over them harshly. If they don't fall in line, you'll get them, right? Compliance through force, through threats, and through fear. The older men, however, also say, yeah, the, the goal is compliance. We want these people to submit to you. And if you want these people to submit to you, then respond with gentleness. Consider their needs, alleviate the, their burdens, put their needs first. Uh, be a servant leader. In fact, that's the language that they use when speaking to the king. Be a servant to them today, and they're going to be servants for the rest of your reign. They advise moderation, gentleness. Put their needs, the needs of your subjects, ahead of their own, and they will submit to you. And that's the kind of king that you can submit to, can't you? A king who doesn't think about himself first, but thinks about the people first. Now, these two different leadership styles will produce two different kinds of obedience, won't they? Threats, fear, harsh, abusive speech might produce outward compliance, but it's not going to be compliance from the heart. As soon as the threat disappears, so does the obedience. As soon as there's nothing to fear, I'm not going to obey anymore. The harsh, brutal, threatening style of leadership produces outward conformity and outward submission, but not submission from the heart. Whereas a gentle, selfless, servant leader produces not just outward obedience, but produces submission from the heart. Again, when you see that your king is setting aside his rights, caring for you, alleviating your burdens. That may, that's, a, that's the kind of king you want to submit to. That's the kind of king you want to be loyal to. When you see those in authority being selfless, considerate about your needs, you want to submit to them. 
So, how do, so that raises the question, uh, for those of us in positions of authority, how do, we, how do we make submission a delight to those under us? How do we make submission a joy to those who are under our authority? Granted, we're not kings uh, like Rehoboam, uh, but many of us have authority over others. Parents have authority over children. Husbands have authority over wives. Pastors over the church. Um, managers have authority over people at work. Employers over employees. There are all kinds of areas in life, teachers over students, where uh, there's a kind of authority exercised uh, over others. And the question is, how do we make submission on the part of those under us a joy rather than a burden? And this passage is instructive. Again, look at the counsel of the old men. If you want them to submit, be a, if you want them to be your servants, be a servant to them. If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. How do you get them to be your servant? By being their servant. Set aside your right, be considerate, seek their good, and then they'll submit to you, Rehoboam. It's much easier to obey and to, to submit to a dad who when you walk in the room, that dad immediately shuts off the TV and gives you his undivided attention. Versus the dad when you walk in the room, get out of the way. Don't interrupt. Don't ever interrupt me when I'm watching the game. Right? That's, it's harder to submit to that dad. It's easier to submit to a husband who is thoughtful, takes the kids every once in a while so you can get a breather than the guy who's oblivious to the needs of his wife, right? Uh, where there is servant leadership, selflessness in the exercise of authority, it makes it easier for those under the authority to submit. So consider your own life. How can you make it easier for your children, your wife, your employees to obey gladly? Where are some areas that where you have perhaps exercised authority selfishly and you can be more of a servant to those that God has called to follow you. We win the hearts of those under us when we, when we deal with gentleness and selflessness. That's the advice that the old men give, and uh, it's good and it's disregarded. Rehoboam chooses the different path, the path of whips, scorpions, thick thighs. Uh, he goes back to the people, three days later, they gather together, and he responds not according to the moderation of the aged, but the brash counsel of the young. You think your yoke was heavy under Solomon? It's going to get worse. You think you were punished under Solomon? It's going to get worse. I'll discipline you with scorpions. And here Rehoboam reflects a leadership style that from a biblical standpoint is actually closer to Pharaoh than God's ideal king. Uh, we know that the people of God were ground down in Egypt for Pharaoh's building projects. Uh, and in the same way, Rehoboam is saying, I'm going to build and I'm going to do what I want on your blood, sweat, and tears. I will grind you down to accomplish what I decree. He, he reflects more Pharaoh than God's ideal. And at this juncture where Rehoboam says, in, in effect, my rule is going to be harsh and oppressive, at precisely this point, Rehoboam is the opposite of the rule of God himself. Again and again in scripture, we see God characterized as the one who stoops down to lift heavy burdens off the shoulders of his people. He is the God who relieves the oppressed, who takes burdens away. 
Isn't that how Israel becomes a nation? They are a people pining uh, in captivity. They are slaves to the Egyptians. And God hears their anguished cries. And what does he do? He liberates his oppressed people from their oppressors. That's the sort of God he is. Exodus 20 says, I am the Lord your God, Exodus 22, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is a liberator in Scripture. Psalm 81, 6 through 7. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. You were being crushed by the heavy burdens of Pharaoh, and I lifted those burdens. I gave you relief. And so also when we get to Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became a human being to save us from our sins and reconcile us to God, here's how he sums up his ministry in Luke 4 using the language of Isaiah, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came into the world to liberate human beings who were in bondage to the guilt of sin and the tyranny of sin and the fear of death. Jesus came into the world to liberate mankind from these hostile powers that they might be truly free. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Contrast to Rehoboam, whose rule is harsh, soul-crushing. It saps the life out of his people. It grinds them down. When Jesus becomes your master, he liberates you. Indeed, in a passage that's very interesting to contrast with what uh, Rehoboam says here, Matthew eleven twenty-eight thirty. 30, this is how Jesus describes his yoke. Rehoboam's yoke is heavy, burdensome, crushing. You fall and falter under that yoke. But here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. In contrast to oppressive tyrants, King Jesus liberates his people and gives them relief. Put anything else other than Jesus Christ at the center of your life and it will oppress you. It will control you. In fact, again, it's instructive that it seems that as Solomon's regime became increasingly idolatrous, it also became more oppressive. Make anything other than Jesus the center, and that thing will oppress and control you. Make money the center of your life, and it will fill you with anxiety. Am I making enough, not making enough? It will put a strain on your marriage and relationship. It will cause you to overwork. It will grind you down. Every other God other than the true God will crush you and oppress you. But come to Jesus, and there is freedom and life. To submit to him and his commandments is liberating and life-giving. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you won't be reluctant to serve him. If you believe that his service is perfect freedom, you will submit gladly, energetically, and comprehensively. 
There is no better life than the life lived in submission to Christ. That's the path of freedom, liberty, and life. When you believe that, you'll say, I believe it was Calvin who, who had this uh, famous line, Lord, I offer, my, I offer my heart, Lord, promptly and sincerely. When you, when you see that submitting to Jesus is liberating, you'll say, Lord, I offer my heart promptly and sincerely. I want nothing more or less than to submit to you because your ways are good and right. A striking contrast between Rehoboam and his rule and the rule of God and Christ over his people. Now, this decision to follow the advice of the young men creates a political earthquake that cracks the kingdom in two. The result of this is that the northern tribes are naturally dissatisfied. We don't have a stake in the king. Does what he wants. Uh, when Rehoboam foolishly sends the taskmaster, so he's still, I suppose, optimistic at this stage that he can win back these tribes, so he sends the taskmaster to them, and he is given, as one commentator puts it, a rocky reception. That is, he's stoned. Um, he, he's killed, and the king has to flee back to Judea. Uh, and in place of the oppressive Rehoboam, the northern tribes put Jeroboam over them as their king. And Rehoboam tries to keep the kingdom from unraveling by gathering together an impressive force, but the Lord intervenes through a prophet and says, this is from me. Stand down. I've brought this about. You Leave it alone. There is no fighting here. And uh, remarkably, in one of the few instances in Scripture of a king listening to the prophet, uh, Rehoboam stands down. So what we've seen to this point is the human cause of the rupture of the kingdom. Human foolishness and brashness and harshness that leads to the demise of the kingdom, the separation of the tribes. But there is another factor here, and the crucial verse in this whole section is verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, disregarded the advice of the old men. The, the king did not listen to the people. Why? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Uh, let me ask you a question. According to this passage, who is responsible for the division of the kingdom, Rehoboam or God? Yes, that's the correct answer. Uh, Rehoboam is not off the hook morally because God decreed that this should happen to fulfill his word. He's responsible for what he did here. He behaved foolishly and he's wrong and the consequences are painful. And yet God brought this about. He brought about the foolish decision and the consequences. And we see this tension all over the place in scripture. Human beings are really free their choices really matter. They're responsible for the choices they make. And yet there's also a divine plan in the background where God is working all things according to his good purposes. One more biblical example of this. I'll give you several here. Uh, but consider the story. We were just reading this last night with my family, our family worship time. We are in Judges. And uh, in chapter 14, it tells the story of uh, Samson 
And Samson, as you know, is led by his appetites and his eyes, and he has a, he's too drawn to Philistine women, pagan women. So his great downfall. But we're told, Samson said to his father, go uh, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Pagan woman shouldn't have any, any interest in her. This is wrong for him to do this. He nevertheless insists, she is right in my eyes, get her for me. And then we're told in the next verse, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, was Samson right to go after foreign women and Philistine women? No. Did God use that, plan that, orchestrate that? Yeah, to accomplish his purposes to bring judgment on the Philistines. And so we see this, this, this sovereignty, uh, God is in control, and human responsibility tension often in Scripture. And what we need to do is affirm both perspectives, even though we can't do the math. That's where I land. And I land there because I see both clearly taught in Scripture. We need to be clear that human beings are fully responsible for their choices. Rehoboam can't blame God, and neither can we. Right? We are responsible. We make real choices. And yet, encouragingly, God is also advancing his purposes through the silliness, foolishness, and wickedness of man. Not even just accomplishing his purposes despite them, but as we've seen, working even through those things to bring about his word. You need both. One, you need it because you need to own your decisions. You need to be responsible. At the same time, you need the sovereign perspective because that's what gives pattern and and order to history. If you don't have God orchestrating things, then where's the pattern? Where's the order? It's just the chaos of human choices. Both perspectives are essential, and we should affirm both because both are in Scripture. So the perspective uh, that we have of God and his relationship to his world in this passage is not that God is a spectator uh, hoping that his word will come to pass, but watching and waiting. No, the perspective is God is involved in history, orchestrating things to bring about the word that he proclaimed to Solomon. God is ordering things to advance his plan, his word, his purpose. And that should be a source of tremendous comfort for us. History is meaningful and purposeful. God is working through all the chaos that we see, through the folly, through the silliness, to establish his rule over the nations. God is committed to redeeming a people for his glory. He is committed to drawing a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, washing guilty sinners of their sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and uniting them as one people and making all things new, renewing humanity, renewing creation. God is committed to opening the door to a new creation and eternal life. That's where he's going. And we, have, we can have absolute confidence that he will succeed because he is orchestrating all things to that end. If you believe that, you should be overflowing with hope. You should be confident. Christ will build the church The gates of hell will not prevail, regardless of how dire it may look out there in the world. God wins. Christ wins. He will conquer. His victory is sure and secure. And when you have that hope and you're confident in that, that produces energetic service to Jesus Christ. You know that all of the humble, ordinary acts of faithfulness that you do aren't in vain. They are contributing to that great work of God in the world, showing up to church week after week, reading the Bible with your kids, inviting neighbors into your home, even when it's not convenient, for the sake of pointing them to Jesus, Uh, serving in all sorts of humble ways in the church. These ordinary acts of faithfulness take on incredible significance when we see them in light of that big perspective. God will triumph, and he's using these quiet, out-of-the-way, ordinary acts of faithfulness of his people to accomplish his purposes. 
It's hard not to get weary and lose heart when you don't see the end. It's doing one thing after another, but where's all this going? But when you have the end in sight, no, God will triumph. And he's using these ordinary acts of faithfulness, showing up to community groups, showing up to church, encouraging people. He's using that to accomplish his purpose. When you see that, it energizes you. It gives significance to your ordinary acts of faithfulness. And you don't lose heart. You keep going. And by way of a final encouragement, what is true on the big canvas of history is true of your individual life as well. Not only is God working all things to bring about the redemption of the church and renew all things, he is working in all circumstances for your good. And that good, as defined by Romans chapter 8, is conformity to the image of Christ. In all that happens to you, God is working all of those things to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. And what is, for me, one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture, uh, Romans chapter 8, perhaps if it's so encouraging I should have it memorized, <laughs> Romans 8.28, I, I could manage a paraphrase, okay? Uh, Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, listen, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What an amazing statement. All the pain and tragedies of life, God is slowly chipping away, uh, chipping away what is unlike Christ and making us increasingly like Jesus. And all the heartaches, the pain, the malicious things that people do to us, God is using all of that to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. It makes all the difference in the world if you believe that the hardships you face is random and chaotic, it just happens, if I hadn't been in that intersection, then this terrible thing wouldn't have happened, right? If that's how you look at suffering as fundamentally random and not part of a plan, it will crush you. But if you see no, yeah, from a human standpoint, I wish I hadn't been in that intersection, but I know God works all things for my good. I know that even in this pain, he's making me like Jesus. I believe that, I trust that, I lean into that. When you do that, it provides tremendous encouragement. It gives you the strength to press on in hope and face the challenges of, of life without losing heart. So as we contemplate the purposefulness of history, God's sovereignty of, over all these things, the invitation to us this morning is simple. Trust in this great God. Have confidence in him. And knowing that he triumphs, energetically do the things that he has given you to do, confident that he will use those things to do great things, to glorify himself and uh, bring people to himself and conform them to the image of Jesus. Trust in this God and energetically and joyfully serve him. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you, Lord, that our lives are not finally in the hands of impersonal forces or malicious people. We thank you, Lord, that we are in your good fatherly hands and you use even the traumas of life not to finally destroy us, but to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would deepen not simply our understanding of these truths, but our faith in these truths that we might live as we ought. Amen.